Welcome, everyone, to the Zoomcast. I'm Mike Claiborne. Welcome to ClavesOnline.com. Well, we're going to have some fun today. We're going to visit with one of my favorites. You see him on the NHL Network. He had a great career in the National Hockey League, played over 11 years, saw a lot, and he's done a lot. And our guest today is Kevin Weeks of the NHL Network, along with other things. You can follow him at uh, Kevin Weeks, at Kevin Weeks on Twitter, and he's always got something good to say. So first of all, We've been trying to do this. We had a chance to hook up, man. I'm finally glad we had a chance to talk, and thanks for joining me today. Claves, thanks so much for having me on, man. Appreciate you, and uh, thanks for taking the time. Hope you and the family are healthy and safe, and the same thing for all the listeners. That's most important, so I'm pumped to be able to join you, man. Thank you. Well, we have so much to cover. So first of all, how many years yeah. now for the NHL Network? Because you have yeah. you really kind of moved in, and it seemed like the transition was one that was ideal for you. Thank you. This has been 11 years. So Holy 11 God. years now. You I, know old, it flies. I know I'm dead now. I'm 45. My mom told me that today. I was talking to my mom and dad this morning. And they said the same thing. My mom specifically said that. I'm like, mom, you just had your 70th birthday on May 15th. So I don't know who you're talking to, but exactly. we're so blessed to, to be able to have them both. But in saying that, yeah, it flies by, man. You know what's weird claims is when I first came to the league, I remember some older players that I played with along the way, Mark Messier, Hall of Famer, Ron Francis, Dino Cicerelli, Dave Vanderchuk, all Hall of Famers, for an example, Kirk wow. Muller. And I remember those guys are like, you young guys, you better enjoy it. You better enjoy it, man. It's going to fly by. It flies by. You young guys enjoy it. We're like, what do you mean? 21 years old? Everything's cool. 22? I feel good. Body feels nice. Eight pack, six pack, shredded up. I feel good. <laughs> but uh, it's funny how these years fly by. So yeah, it's been 11 years in broadcasting now. Um between the NHL Network, when I first started, I did the NHL Network and I did Hockey Night in Canada. And then I did NHL Network, Hockey Night in Canada, some NBC. Then I did the same with some MSG. And then exclusively, I've done NHL Network the last five years since we moved into MLB Network here in Jersey. So uh, for somebody like yourself that's as accomplished as you are, um, this is, you know, for a lot of different former athletes that get into broadcasting, a lot of them don't necessarily respect the craft or take it seriously. Not me. I want it to be as good as possible, as quickly as possible. And that's why I want to be on TV as often as possible. Well, it, it's worked out for you, man. You threw out a name, Dino Cicerelli, man. Yeah. I re- you, know, yeah. he, you know, he was never drafted because right. he had an injury in junior. Mm-hmm. 600 goals, man, and it took him forever to get in the Hall of Fame. I don't think he scored Crazy. a goal beyond 20 feet in his whole career. Yeah, exactly. He used to putt for dough. That's oh, it. Yeah, he yeah, exactly. putt for dough. Yeah, he's always within five, within five feet of the net. But, uh, yeah, it was great to play with, though. For you, uh, you know, you've been in the business long enough now that every sports league has a dedicated network. Mm -hmm. Uh, What have you seen change the most for you since you first started in the broadcasting field, especially with the NHL network? I would just say better resources. I mean, our resources weren't where they could have been when it was back up home in Toronto at TSN. Uh, It was great in that we had a league network, but I feel like the broadcast quality, the production assets, the production value, all things that you know all too well, um, those have ratcheted up without question with us being at MLB Network. There's more there's more resources that are put into that. And then also doing more curated content and not just content around stats. You know, we have a lot of stat geeks and that's all accessible, but we want, also want to be able to tell people things that they wouldn't know or that they can't necessarily find out. So give them those nuances, the little nuggets that people are looking for. And we know that as sports fans ourselves, And some of that stuff is second and third nature to us. But to the viewer and the listener, they want to see that stuff. Tell me something that I don't know about Yadier or Melita, which you're able to do. Tell me something I don't know about 
how he changed his catcher's equipment or something in his shin guards to be able to alleviate some of the pressure on his knees or, or on his low back. Just some of those little details, how he changes his, his catcher's mitt, all those types of things. So MLB Network, to be fair, uh, before us even getting there, I watched MLB Network back home in Toronto for years. And Harold Reynolds, you know, our boy, HR. Oh, yeah, HR, my man. Network. You know, HR is the man. Uh, and they've got a lot, of, a lot of other great analysts on there, too. Billy Ripken does a great job. Uh, so many of them, but they really get into the detail of the game, and that's where it's allowed us to do the same thing on the hockey side. You know, uh, when you look back at this whole situation, I mm-hmm. want to go back to to the virus and, and mm-hmm. how it's become the ultimate time changer for all of us. What went through your mind the first night you heard about the NBA shutting down? What went through your mind then, and did you ever think we'd be at this point? Here we are almost in the middle of June, mm-hmm. and we still have hockey to be played. You know what, Clave, it's funny that you asked that question. Not funny by laugh, but just ironically speaking, what's crazy is we were on the air that night, and we were live that night. So what was crazy about when that came down on the NBA side, and then we, you know, Commissioner Bettman came out, and we did the same thing on the hockey side, and we had to go and talk about it. But what was interesting, and I've always said this, and my parents instilled this in us since we were kids, my sister and I, they always said there's life and there's sport. And the two often intersect. And this was real life stuff, right? When we came out with this COVID and the league shutting down, this is unprecedented. We had never heard about it. But literally before we went on the air to discuss it on the heels of commissioner making the announcement that our league was going on pause, I knew that that was a huge moment. And these are the moments, not by we have this type of circumstance, but these are the moments that you and um, myself and other professionals we have in the business, these are the moments we live for. Because these are the where were you when moments. Mm-hmm. I'm getting goosebumps on my arms talking about it right now. You know, there are generations of fans that you've served. And, you know, I've had their own privilege like you of being able to serve a lot of these great fans and players that are the product. And in saying that, these are the moments people will remember. So I remember before we went on the air and talking to our host, Tony Luffman, and uh, my co-analyst, uh, Billy Lindsay, who I played with with the Florida Panthers. Tony was like, man this is crazy, man. This is so big. This is whatever. This is huge. This is totally different. This is totally different. I'm like, Tone, give the opening remarks and, and, and hit it. And get the hell out of the way. Yeah, hand it over here. Yeah. I got this. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> literally, and I know you've had those moments yourself. Oh, yeah. But in saying that, I knew how important and how critical that was to our viewer listeners all around the world because that was historic in and of itself that we're about to go on pause. Well, you know, I want to go back to something you touched on, your your player experience, because it's going to really weigh heavily now as it looks like we're going to get the game back. Mm-hmm. What do you think some of the real challenges are going to be? Now, this is different than a guy coming in from an offseason because a lot of right. these guys haven't skated and things of that nature. But what are some of the challenges you think you're going to see from some of the players in getting themselves acclimated to playing hockey and basically playing in a, in a sprint mode uh, in a playoff mode, which is much different than what they'd be doing on a, on a night in February. You know what's crazy is, as athletes, so let's take you guys in MLB, you have, since they're kids, they've got that routine based on the calendar, right? And it's no different for the hockey players. They have that routine based on the calendar. So the same way that a lot of the birds fly from north fly southbound, the players have their migrational patterns too. And what they're able to do in terms of their training how, uh, you know, the periodization, the sports-specific training, getting on the ice, all that stuff. Guess what, Claves? Throw all that in the, in the garbage now. 
Yes. And now that you got to throw all that in the garbage, literally. Ball it up, throw it ball out. It up, doesn't work it anymore. It's a tape ball. You use that tape, throw it out, throw it in the garbage in the middle of the locker room and start afresh. So that's basically what's happening. So some of the challenges I can see and from talking to different players, um, timing, spacing, your reads, trusting your instincts, all those things that become second nature as a player by way of repetitions through the calendar, it's tough to recreate that stuff. And it's tough to reestablish those things. Not to mention we have some players in certain parts of the country here in the United States, in some parts of Canada where arenas have been open and especially for a lot of players that are overseas. So they've been able to skate some of them this whole time. So the fact that some of them have been able to skate, that's a competitive advantage for them. But I would say conditioning, timing, spacing, and your feel, especially for goalies. I mean, it, it's a lot like golf. I don't care if you're the greatest ever in Tiger or whoever you may be. It could be Phil Mickelson, who's one of the best ever. If you don't play, you don't swing the club, that kinesthetic awareness, that feel around the greens, that feel in the sand, it's the same thing in playing hockey, but specifically for goalies. Uh, that's going to be a big challenge for a lot of guys, but they're just trying to work through it as best they can. You know, I'm I'm thinking that you have to be so careful with the lower body Big as time. far as the growing pulls and the strains because mm-hmm. that's where the power is driven. And mm-hmm. these guys definitely need to make sure they're stretched and they're warm before they really try and turn the turn the gas on because you don't want to have a guy tweaking something early in camp and then trying to baby it for the rest of the year. Exactly. You know what? It's funny you said that too because a lot of those little intrinsic muscles are so key. They're so key to performance. And it doesn't matter if you're the great Michael Jordan. It doesn't matter if you're the great Ozzie Smith playing short. People used to see Ozzie make plays, and you know this. See him make plays that short, they'd be like, wow, oh, my gosh, he did that? Oh, my goodness. And he was able to do a backflip after that. But just imagine the pliability of his muscles and imagine the conditioning of his muscles, imagining the flexibility that allowed him to have that range. So think of it in hockey terms now. Think of Jordan Bennington and, and, and uh, Jake Allen there for the Blues. Just think of how much they would have to be. And I've been in touch with, with Binner during this, this time too. But to your point, think about how much they have to work on reconditioning those little muscles, the hip flexors, the groins, the psoas muscle and the lower abdominals, um, the labrum, the hips, all those different things. Because one thing that I do know for sure, because every time a goalie, for example, goes down in a butterfly, that's two to three times your body weight of force per square inch. On, on your joints, so specifically on your hips, knees, and back, and ankles. So uh, just from that standpoint, the demands and the rigors of the position, let alone on skates, let alone on ice. Not only is he a former NHL goalie, we now learn Kevin Weeks is a kinesiologist also. So that's good, man. you you got a future when this game is over uh, with for you. Hey, do you like the playoff setup? And, and you think that with the format, it's going to be harder? I happen to think that Anyone who participates this year, and I know people say, well, the season was broken up. I think anybody who can win it this year will really have a gold star by their name because I think this is going to be harder than anything any player has ever partaken in. Well said. Well said. You're spot on with that. And it is because it's so unprecedented. It's so unique. The road to the Stanley Cup. And, you know, I've got friends in every sport from Olympic athletes like the great Donovan Bailey Sprinter to this person, that person, people that – are in different sports, and I respect them all. But the Stanley Cup is unique, and the road to winning the Stanley Cup is unique. Hardest and trophy to win, period. Hardest trophy to win in pro sports. No disrespect because I love all sports, and I got buddies in all of them. But consider this, though. 
Consider last year in your St. Louis, Missouri, on January 1st, I got to get hyped now. Consider that your St. Louis Blues were in last place in the league. Not in the, not in the division, not in the Western Conference, in the league. They were on the mat. Hulk Hogan had them down on the mat. It was about to do the three count. And hey, we, had, we had an AHL team that was starting to play a little bit better than us. So you're, <laughs> exactly. you're absolutely right. Right? And they were down on the mat, almost a three count. They got up. They shook loose of Hulk Hogan. They're like, no, <laughs> we're back. And they came all the way back from that to winning the Stanley Cup to the credit of their organization. Um, Doug Armstrong and the guys in the front office. And my man, Chief, Craig Berube, behind the bench. Jordan Bennington in the net and the entire squad. All that to say... Look at how hard that was in a regular year. Now, let's run it back. They're in first place in the West right now. They're, they No drop-off whatsoever. But when this expanded format starts with 24 teams, um, the Blues are still, for me, the favorite in the West. But all that to say, it's a it's a different kettle of fish now right now. You know, and you and I'm glad you you said they're the favorite because a lot of people don't pick them. And I'm saying to myself, wait a minute. They're, they're the defending champions. They got everybody back. They know how to win on the road better than anybody because winning any game in Boston in June is always a challenge. True. And yet there are people who still think Colorado or Vegas or some other teams out of the West can still win this thing. So where where is the disconnect at where people don't give the St. Louis Blues more of a chance? You know, one thing I've learned in this game since I was young and when I started skating with NHL players in the summers back in Toronto before – I got into the league, so I was in junior at that time. OHL was 16, 17. A lot of people in our business like to idealize. Mm-hmm. But we're in the performance business at the end of the day, yeah. right? We're in the performance business. It's not about idealization. This isn't, you know, you're listening to The Quiet Storm and you want to hear Teddy <laughs> Pendergrass or you want to hear, you know, whoever, um, loose ends. The, the, the thing is, I believe in the objectivity. And when you're objective and your your agenda is clean and pure, you can best evaluate. And I think for a lot of people, a lot of people are like, St. Louis, how is that? Cardinals? Yeah, of course. But for the yeah. Blues, eh, we don't really know. Eh, we're not really sure. And I'm not that type of cat. I give credit where it's due. I was raised that way. So to me, you just pointed it out. The Blues are healthy. Everybody's healthy. Tarasenko will be back. And you have that whole squad, save for native uh, – St. Louis man and my boy um, Patty Maroon, who was a big piece. Don't get me wrong, and I would have loved to have seen him stay there. But nonetheless, that's the same squad, and they're healthy. And they pick up a Justin Falk along and you the way. Pick up to, Justin Falk yeah. along the way. I'll throw so in the fact me, I lo- I love the Blues. They're they're my favorite coming out of the West. The the other thing that they have working for them, and I'm sure some other teams can say this too. They've had their top prospects get a taste of the NHL. So as I think we're going to learn, you better be deep if you want to have a long run where you be able to pull on a guy and bring him in to give you eight, 12 minutes a night. Uh, They've got people with that sort of depth where they can go out and have the true experience and not be overwhelmed like some other guys who might have been playing in junior or they may have been playing their first year pro uh, who may not have that experience and may be counted upon. Let me tell you something, man. So Robert Thomas is one of those guys who was great in London up in the OHL. And he, you, you saw him with the Blues last year. You saw how skilled he is. You see how well he played. You saw his hockey IQ, his ability to read the rink and read situation, make plays. Let me take you inside this because we love doing this and taking the fans a little deeper. When I was eight, nine years old, there was a guy playing for our Toronto Red Wing midget team when I was playing like 
I would have been Adam. So I was, yeah, eight or nine. There's a guy playing for our midget team by the name of Aki Kairu. He wore number 14. So let's spin it forward, okay, from 1983, 84, whatever it would have been. Let's spin it forward. I used to hang out in that midget team's locker room because those guys are like my heroes. And I would go in there and ask the goalies, hey, man, can I try on your glove? Can I try on your blocker? Why do you do this with your pads? Aki Kairu was on that team. Let's spin it forward to the Enterprise. Oh, no. You got to be kidding me. Let's spin it forward to Enterprise last year at the Stanley Cup final. And, in fact, this was before you and I had met. This guy comes up behind me, and he grabs me. He's like, because he used to call me Cheesy. He's like, Cheesy, is that you? Is that you? I'm like, Aki. I hadn't seen this guy since I was a kid. And his son, Jordan Kairou, is now a member of the St. Louis Blues. Man, I'm getting goosebumps telling you the story. So that just goes to show – uh, as you just alluded to, the depth that the Blues have and where the journey can take you in this game. And Jordan Cairo is a, a really bright young player that's gotten some key minutes for them this year. As Huey Lewis in the news once said, it's a small, small world. So right, I, exactly. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Hey, yeah. but you know what? I don't know if it makes a difference or not, mm. but what cities do you think are going to be the selected host cities for the tournament? Because if they're going to isolate everybody, it's a whole new ball game for them. It's not like they can go to their favorite restaurant. It's not like they right. can go here and go there. But what cities do you think stack up best? And I would think that maybe a Canadian city is going to be part of this. And because they haven't relaxed their uh, health regulations yet, it's maybe one of the reasons why we're waiting to hear what the league is going to say about the cities. Yeah, you know, you just nailed it. I would say if I'm looking the West, specifically in the Pacific, I know it's going to be Vegas. And or L.A., because L.A. is really pushing very hard for it. Both cities make a great make great cases and they have arena availability. They have practice facilities that are world class, especially in Vegas. But L.A. does, too. The Kings had shared that with the Lakers. They got a great setup. Um, It's warm weather. The players are not going to be bemoaned being there. So Vegas, L.A., Potentially Chicago and the Blackhawks just built their new practice facility as well. Um, those would be teams that I see in the West. Don't sleep on Edmonton. Edmonton's making a strong push. The uh, the premier of which would essentially be the senator, or the congressperson, but the senator uh, equivalent up in Alberta, Kenny is making a huge push for the Oilers to be able to host it in Edmonton. They got a world class facility, great practice facility there. So that might be one Canadian city. That could figure into it in the West, in the East, my hometown of Toronto, because there's 150 different arenas in that city, uh, including, of course, uh, Scotiabank Arena, where the Raptors play and the Toronto Maple Leafs play. But the HL team, the Rico Center, is five minutes from there, too. And then, as I said, 150 other arenas. So, But you, I love your point in the fact that they haven't relaxed necessarily the health regulations. So I spoke to Sheldon Keefe, the Leafs head coach today. He said that they're going to have a lot of players at the facility today in different time increments to respect the social distancing. But those are cities that I see right now, uh, if I had to say, looking at it, my top five. But if the Canadian government doesn't relax some of the immigration restrictions on incoming players or returning players, and if, if they have to quarantine, then our league needs to move on potentially. And therefore, some of the other U.S. markets would be more attractive for that reason because it's less red tape. Let's change gears for a bit. There's been a lot that's gone on in the world here recently, mm-hmm. uh, protesting race, racial injustices. Uh, and everybody's got a story to tell. You have one. I know I have one about mm-hmm. how things were for me. 
and for you, uh, right. especially being a black person who wanted to play hockey and mm. hockey for anybody who knows me is a sport I truly love, mm. taught myself the game and how to skate. And right. then somebody right. said, you're not a good teacher because you need some more lessons on how to skate, <laughs> which was fine. It's all good. But, but the bottom line is what sort of things did you go through in growing up? And you grew up in a metropolitan area of Toronto, which is one of the most diverse cities in the world. But what was it like for you? You know what, Clades? I'm going to do it this way. Let me take it from the beginning, and I'll try to do a Cliff Notes version, which won't do it justice. But you know, we're Caribbean. My parents are from beautiful Barbados, and my mom and dad. Um, my dad was an overseer on a plantation on his own on their island, on Applewhite's plantation. He worked on the plantation. He was overseer, and he didn't want to move to North America. He didn't want to move to Canada, so my mom forced him. They got married. My mom forced him. She's like, "Listen, I got an apartment." I've already talked to, you know, Canadian immigration. You're coming. So they moved to Canada. My aunt and uncle and my cousin uh, moved there as well. And basically what happened is growing up there and growing up in our part of the city, it was multicultural, it was diverse, but it was known as the original Little Italy. So we had mm. all of our Italian boys, all of our Greek friends, Portuguese, fellow Caribbean, white Canadian, whatever, you name it. And everybody was all in this kind of pot that was Little Italy at that time. So my older cousin's born in 67. Those guys played street hockey, 68, excuse me. Those guys played street hockey. And I was like, I want to play. And then when we went Get to the goal. local park, it totally. That's exactly what happened. Get back exactly, there. Get back there. So that's exactly what happened. I'm like, cool. You guys think you're not punking me. That's why I want to be. <laughs> so, so Hillcrest Park in our neighborhood uh, right beside the tennis courts, outside the cage, like the fence of the tennis court, they used to have – they would – flooded and make a rink there so claims i was out there in old school <laughs> cougar winter boots man before i had skates so from that point i knew i want to play in the nhl and that was my goal first grade miss mahar was my teacher my first book that i wrote in first grade you know i drew the nhl logo i drew myself as the goalie the scoreboard the whole deal and that was it so fortunately both my mom and dad were open-minded even though my dad played cricket back home they're open-minded they were supportive. They were loving. They were nurturing for my sister and I. They both work full time. For any of us, any of you listeners that are old school, they both try to work time and a half, work overtime mm -hmm. as much as possible to get that time and a half. And, you know, they bought exactly get that extra bread because hockey was so expensive. Even in the 80s, it was expensive, let alone now. So all that to say, for the most part, playing, you know, elite level from when I was eight, People were really good to us, and they treated my family really well in that GTHL, Greater Toronto Hockey Loop. And that's the largest youth hockey league in the world. It's producing <clears throat> players. But people were great to us. But, Claves, as I got higher up and as I got into the OHL, into Major Junior, that's when I started to see things. And that's when I started to – that's when it came knocking on the front door. And that's when I heard guys say, you know, why are we doing a face-off today? There's so many brothers out here. We should be doing a jump ball. You know, that type thing. Mm -hmm. Literally that opening face-off, you know, hearing people yell epithets. When I'm in the net and my parents and sister and, you know, friends or whoever, cousins were at the games, and at times people yelling epithets, and I could literally hear it as clear as day. And those are the types of things in addition to, okay, well, we're going to try you. Okay, well, we're going to try you. Okay, well, you can have an indiscriminate fan or a knucklehead fan, but then certain times, certain teams you play for, you don't get the same opportunity. Then if you say something, you're, you're, you're lashing out or you're angry or you're back. Yeah. So I had to 
have a banana thrown at me during a game in Montreal in the Stanley Cup playoffs in Montreal at the end of a game. We lost in overtime. So those are the types of things, you know, disparity sometimes in contracts. Those are the types of things that I had to face, not to mention at times driving in Toronto at the time in offseason with my pads and my stick and my gear in the car, my, my bag, and I'd be going to the arena, get pulled over. It happened at least 20 times, minimum. Get pulled over. Whose vehicle is this, sir? Oh, it's mine, sir or ma'am. Um, can we see your license registration? Sir, sure thing, sir or ma'am. Here you go. Oh, you're weeks. You're the goalie. Why don't you play here for the Leafs, man? Why don't you come <laughs> home and play for the Leafs? So that's the kind of stuff over the time. And I know you've experienced it. And sir, same thing with a lot of the listeners where what's hurtful to that is it's so degrading and it's so demeaning as a human being and especially as a law-abiding person, especially as a professional. And I always say just human 101, it, it degrades you to your core. And that's why I'm very fortunate that I had the family that I did, I had the cultural foundation because I know exactly who I am. I know where I've come from. I know what I stand for. So it's been a long road, man. You know, it's it's amazing. And, and I'm glad you give tribute to your parents because if they would have given you the green light to react, you and I probably wouldn't be talking. You, so you would have been out. And I think my parents were the same way where there's a time and place for everything. Mm-hmm. If you want to get back at them, you know what? Just do your job a little bit better and, and right. work harder. And that way they'll have to respect your skill set. And then they'll get to know you. And then they'll realize what an idiot they were because they were judging you by the color of your skin, not the heart that you had. And I, I felt that that was so important in my family. Glad to hear it in yours. Now, for you, uh, and I'm sure you've heard this as well, because ever since everything started to unravel, I've heard people come to me and say, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't know. Or they'll say, I'm sorry, I didn't do it. Uh, What can I do? And they always say, what can I do? So what do you say to people who are still struggling with this, who don't look like you and me, who feel like they actually see it on a video that somebody is being mistreated? And I always say, man, that's par for the course. I can show you that almost every day of the week. Mm -hmm. But what do you say to those people who want to try and embrace what's going on and try and make things a little better? You know, I start with one thing is don't be hypersensitive. Be a better listener is what I tell them. Yeah, don't be hypersensitive because if you're not hypersensitive and no, it's not me, ooh, it's not ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> if, you, if you eliminate that from the start, you can then start to listen. And if you're listening, the more you listen, the more you learn. And the more you learn, the more you're going to understand. And it's like an onboarding and the more you're going to understand. And the more you understand the more you can then see, okay, well, I, I can empathize with Claves or, um, you know, anybody. I can mm-hmm. empathize with them in terms of what they're experiencing or what they might have experienced or with the late uh, George Floyd or any person. I mean, that was v- so visible. It was a visible murder in broad daylight. But I shouldn't have to take his passing or any of their passing or any microaggressions or anything caught on film just person to person, human to human, they start, they'll start to develop more empathy, more open-mindedness, and more compassion. And then from there, they can say, okay, well, do I contribute to NAACP? Do I go and contribute to my local Boys and Girls Club? Can I help fund uh, a local after-school girls and boys program, uh, a lunch or food program in schools? There's so many different ways that you can join join in and contribute from a financial standpoint or other resources but also 
just as a human being 101 in terms of how you treat people, how you relate to people, Claves, because at the end of the day, this is a humanity issue. This is humanity yeah. 101. And think about it this way, Claves. Think about any, let's think of the most extreme things that we've seen in addition to what we're seeing now, but prior to that, that predate that. Say it's 9-11, just over the, you know, over the Hudson here in Jersey into New York City. Do you only want to be saved by a white paramedic if you're a white person in the Twin Towers when they're burning down? Are you going to be that selective and that conditional to where you're going to say, hey, listen, that looks like a brother, that firefighter right there. Mm, I don't know. I'm, I'm good. Gonna, yeah, hey, I'm good. I'm going to stay here <laughs> with this. And I'm not making light of it, but with this no, smoldering right. engine in this smoldering fire, or am I going to, and are you not going to grab your coworker because they don't look like you or they don't have the same vowels in the last name that you have? Those are the questions, albeit rhetorically, that I ask people still. That's why I always say it started with human 101, but you got to be able to listen. And Claves, to be fair, and I'm sure you're getting this too, there are a lot of people that genuinely, that I haven't met, and I'm sure you haven't met, or that you've known all along, that have reached out and shown empathy and showed compassion. So I, I, I don't want to turn those people away either, yeah, because no. I really appreciate that too. Hey, for you, uh, I'm a little older than you, so when I really embraced hockey, I didn't mm -hmm. have anybody who looked like me that was playing you know Willie O'Ree had come and gone right so I really embraced players whether it was Gary Younger or Glenn Hall and people of that nature mm. for you is a different story you had some people that were in front of you that 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 looked like you who who are some of the people that you admire and and I won't even say people who were black because sure. I think in, in this game of hockey we learn quick man if we just worrying about trying to admire the brothers in the league. We, we won't have much to admire because we don't have a lot. Totally. But for you, who are some of the players you admire growing up? And obviously goaltending is something that was important to you. But I bet if we put a stick in your hand, you'd probably tell me you were a sniper too. You just weren't called upon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's funny, man. I would say when I look back at it, Grant Fuhr, who you fans would know in St. Louis, of course, a great, great Grant guy Fuhr and Hall of Famer. And you got to know him there, I'm sure. Um, Grant Fuhrer to start with, as far as goalies go, Freddie Brathwaite too. He was he here too. He was there too. And Freddie's parents are from Barbados like mine as well. So I would say Freddie, but then Mike Richter, Patrick Waugh, uh, the great Dominic Hasek, Ed Belfour, Marty Brodeur, of course, Gretz, and you know some of the other players that played out. But I was more of a goalie guy for obvious reasons. So those are a lot of the guys to me that I love watching play Kirk McLean. Cause he was smooth with it in Vancouver, real smooth and elegant. Now he played kind of like a ballroom dancer a little bit, you know, he'd go from here to here, stop. Good skater, real light on his feet, feet. right? Great balance. Excellent. So those are the guys for me. And what was crazy about that Claves is I grew up idolizing all those guys. I had them in my sticker books. I had them in my hockey card collection and then reality hit and I had to, and I got to play against them too. You you really lucked out. All right, a couple other things I want to run by you. No problem. Uh, the, well, I want to go back to the racial issues in, in the yeah. NHL, which yeah. has shown very little patience for, for racial stupidity. Uh, we look back at Bill Peters this year, and there have been some other instances where they didn't waste any time trying to address the issue. Mm -hmm. And while they don't have a lot of people of color in the league, well, they have more now than they've had in a long time. But the fact that the NHL has been very – 
proactive in making sure that players of color mm-hmm. and of different races are going to be comfortable. What, why do you think that is? Is that because of the topic, Gary Bettman, or is there someone else within the NHL that says, hey, look, we're going to get this right and we're going to get it right the right way? I mean, overall, all things start at the top. So I'd start with Gary, Commissioner Bettman, and Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly. And, you know, I know them both. They've always been big supporters of mine going back to my playing days. I've always done a lot of advocacy for the sport, for the league. I'm happy to do so. And I know that they've been big supporters. And they're New Yorkers. They're a little bit more open-minded. Mm-hmm. You know, they know that New York is uh, a melting pot and an epicenter of diversity and best of the best. And keep in mind, Gary also started under the late, great David Stern uh, at the NBA when Gary first started out. So I'm sure that that had uh, – and he's, he's told me that that had a huge impact on him. So that coming from the top is very important. I would then say as we continue to move forward, though, Claves. One thing that's important is we do have a lot of great people who have been advocates. You look back at the Edmonton Oilers over the years, you know, oh, even yeah. today, their teams are always diverse. And going back to the great Glenn Sather, who was the architect of the Oilers, who, you know, has been with the Rangers and uh, I played for him with the Rangers, but he's always been very diverse. His teams have been very diverse. Edmonton to this day are diverse. So let's start there. And then people like Jim Rutherford, different people that I played for that are Hall of Fame GMs, Lou Lamorello here who was in Jersey for years and now is with the Islanders. Those people, too, have been big advocates for just the best people and the best players. So that helps a lot, too. You know, I remember a few years ago, the St. Louis Blues had a diversity night. Yeah. And they had the Edmonton Oilers in town. Uh-huh. And when you think about they had Jamal Mayers. I mean, they yeah. had and Grant Fuhr and Mr. O'Ree was in town as well. I, I cried like a baby. I was so happy to see all of this coming together. It was the first time the Blues had ever done it, and it, it worked for me. I was already in, but to right. see so many players, George LaRock was there. I mean, Edmonton had, I think, four or five African-American players uh, or African players on the team, mm-hmm. and the Blues had two or three as well. I think Freddie Brathwaite was on the team. I know Jamal Mayers, Bryce Salvador, they were all on the team as well. So it was a really good night, and, and I, I think we're going to probably get back to that a little bit more. All right, now here's the fun part of this whole thing. It's all fun. Uh, best player you ever played with? Oh, man. There's a lot of guys that are going to argue that. I was fortunate to play with a lot of great players. I think when it's all said and done, I would say if pressed, uh, I would say Yager because he had 120-something points for us in those sticks. Mess, Mess isn't going to be happy though. Mark Messi is not going to be happy with that answer. Uh, neither will the great Ron Francis, Marty St. Louis. I mean, I told you, Andrew Chuck, yeah. all these guys, but I would say the most dominant, and he put up 120 something points that year. I'd say Yager. Um, best player you ever played against? Gretz. Gretz and Mario by a hair. But Gretz. Gretz put up four points on me one night, man, and then told me about it after the game. When my <laughs> first re- NHL starts. <laughs> he reminded you of each one. Huh? To God. He totally did. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's funny uh, when you said Gretzky and Lemieux by hair. See, yeah. my top three are or yeah. Gretzky, Lemieux, or, or Lemieux Gretzky because physically when he was right, Mario Lemieux was as good as oh any player that's ever laced him up. Totally, man. Mario, like – Imagine he's as long as MJ as Jordan. He's mm-hmm. as long as him. And I know because I've seen him at some of MJ's events. And they're boys. They've been close for years. Mario's every bit 6'6", long legs, long arms. 
And then when he holds a stick, when he was playing, it looked like a javelin. His stick looked, it didn't look, <laughs> yo, it looked like he was at 84 Olympics in LA. That stick looked like a javelin. Like he was here and the puck was over there, like across the room <laughs> from where I'm sitting because the stick was so long and was random as he, he held his hands close together like a golf. Kind of like in Yager was the same way. Yager had a pretty, totally. he had a boat oar in his hand too. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, and they did hold it up t- near the knob quite right. a bit. Yeah. yeah. So what that would do is you would think in playing against them, first of all, as goalies I always tell you, don't line up with the body of the opposing shooter. You always want to be aligned with the puck relative to the middle of the net, wherever the puck is that you're facing. But the problem is they were so tall and so long and the stick was so long that sometimes you'd think you had them. And meanwhile, the puck would be like a foot and a half outside of, off your angle. So, so, so that's what was crazy. And then you add the skill and you add the ability to beat you in so many different ways. Deke, slap shot, wrist shot, five hole. It didn't matter. They're just the greatest that ever played those guys. All right. So this is a two-pronged question. Uh, best teammate that understood you as being a man of color. And who was the one person that took care of you when you first broke in? Oh, man. That's I love that. I love those two. Best teammate that understood me as a man of color. I would say Mike Rupp in Jersey. And we're who you work with today. Stuff. Yep. And we played with, with the Devils. Rupper's a game seven hero from uh, the 03 Stanley Cup mm-hmm. win for the for the Devils. Yeah, three points that game in game seven. But Rupper's always been down. He's from Cleveland. He's down. He played hoops too growing up. He's comfortable in the inner city. He's comfortable with anybody. He's comfortable with the Russian players. He's comfortable with anybody. So I'd probably say Rupper because he was so easy with it from that standpoint. And then as far as who took care of me, there are several guys. But uh, Scott Mellenby when I first came in with the Florida Panthers. One of Panthers. my guys, man. Melvis, a, as I call him. Oh, my goodness. What a, what a classy guy. Right? Melvis is top shelf. And a lot of people don't know Melvis's dad was really the architect. Ralph Mellenby, yeah. He there should be in the Hall of Fame, by the way. Thank you. 100%. 100%. And their family's so cool because to bring this full circle, there's a gentleman that's been reaching out to me, Coach Matthew. I'm going to name him out, shout him out. He's coaching the Pickering Panthers back home in Toronto. They're midget double-A team, so they're 15, 16-year-old kids. And six of the player, of his players are players of color. And I've been referencing him and my sister and husband, full disclosure, and my niece live in Pickering. It's an eastern suburb, the one over from where my parents are uh, in Toronto. And in saying that, this coach has been advocating for justice and some equality in the arenas in our old youth league. I told you, GTHL, hockey so that the players and their parents can feel safe and comfortable in the arena. And the reason why I mentioned Mellenby is his sister is also trying to work in concert with this coach in terms of being able to advocate on behalf of these six players of color that play for this coach's team. So that's the character of the family, the Mellenby family. And they've always been great to me. So uh, I just thought I'd put that out there. Scott was awesome. I'm going to tell you a quick Mel story. So yeah. the Blues pick him up, and yeah. the Blues are going to play Detroit. And at that point, Detroit had the Blues number. Right. And so a writer asked Melody about uh, Detroit and, you know, how intimidating they can be. And he just looked at it and said, what do you want me to do? Go over there and ask him for the fucking autograph? <laughs> <laughs> and you know how Melody is. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I just said, I'm signing up. This is my oh, guy funny. here. That's and funny. I see him all the time. He yeah. still makes St. Louis his home. And what yeah. a classy guy. And another guy you did not want to drop your gloves with because he was as game true. as anybody, but he got it. So all right. Uh, 
What player you mentioned Gretzky who has everybody's number? What was another player that had your number where you just it it wasn't working when he got on the ice? Miro Satan. Miroslav Satan when he played mm -hmm. in Buffalo and then when he played yeah. now, number 81. Um it wasn't fair. I don't know what it was. I don't know if I had temporary blindness or you know temporary um I don't know what it was, but honest to God, every time he was out there, the way he shot the puck, the way he released the puck, the way he skated, it was an oil and water mix, and the advantage was to him. So he used to light me up like a Christmas tree, man, all the time. I don't know what it was. All right, what's the great? What's a great player that you had great success against? Ooh, I would. Ooh, that's a great question. I would. I would hazard to say. Maybe Marty St. Louis. We played together in Tampa, and Marty's a Hall of Famer. So I would say Marty, and then maybe Mario, because I think Mario only got one on me. And I say only because he's that hey. great. He could have put five up on you any night. And, right? hey, and, consider and it a blessing. Good. Consider yeah, exactly. it a blessing. Exactly. All right. That's uh, of that all right. There are a handful of players that could play in any era. Uh, yeah. it, what goalie? What goalie in the in the way the game is played today that you'd like to see come back? and put the pads on just one more time. A guy from yesterday that you'd like to see come back and play with the way the equipment works today and the way the game is played. I got to give you three. Marty Broder, because I play with him. You guys saw him at the end of his mm -hmm. career. He could probably play tonight still. Um, the great Marty Broder, the great Dominic Hasek, because he played at a level that was – like for, in terms of dominance, that was Jordan-esque for me because he did things we didn't think was possible. True. And then and his ability to contort his body and move. And then I would also say Mike Richter, a healthy Mike Richter, because hmm. he was so – or Cujo, because they were so explosive. They're so fast. They're so dynamic in the net. I thought Cujo was as good of an athlete – that I saw playing the Nets in a blues unit. He, Glenn Hall, Cujo. Yeah. Uh, and then when That's Grant came along, we got Grant at the end. But, right. but you know, that night, that season when he played 74, 70, exactly. I was like, holy cow. Right. Yeah, was it 74 or 78? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like that. Came with Bobby Kersey. Right yeah. at that time? Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. and, and he basically saved his career. All right, last question for you. Game uh -huh. seven goalie, who's it going to be? Any area you want to take? Oh, now you just, oh, okay, well. That's a Bob Gibson curveball right there. Um, <laughs> any era? Any era. One guy, game seven, and it's got a chance to put Kevin Weeks's name on the cup. Any era. I'm going to excuse Marty because we're teammates, and he's the winningest goalie of all time, so I'm going to excuse Marty. I'm going to say Grafter. I'll take it. I'd say I'll him or Patrick Waugh, but I'll go with Fierzy because he's easier mentality. His demeanor, demeanor. was just so laid back. Right. Uh, you didn't know whether they scored five on him or he exactly. shut him out for five periods. It didn't make right. a difference. He was the same guy. And when he was here, mm -hmm. 
he, he was such a cerebral guy that I remember in game seven against Phoenix mm-hmm. uh, when he just told me, hey, all we need to get is one tonight. I got the rest of it. And, exactly. you know, Grant wasn't the guy that did a lot of boasting. But when everybody turned and looked, said, oh, right. And he held he stood on his head for two overtime periods until Terjan was able to make the deflection. But uh, yeah, so you're saying that. Yeah. I mean, him. Glenn yeah. Hall was b- before you. He would have yeah. been a guy I would have put at the other end of the rink and let him go for it. Right. Because, you know, what, there's just something different about those cats. And, you know, I've had the chance to play, as mentioned, with a lot of them. Luongo, future Hall of Famer. Lundquist, future Hall of Famer. Marty Brodeur is Marty Brodeur. You know, I can go on and on. But there's something about those cats. Jonathan Quick in this era, too, by the way. With, Great uh, lower body. Oh, my gosh. What he can do with his legs. Oh, he's Mike Richter 2.0 in this era. Mm-hmm. And ironically, Richter was his favorite goalie because Quickie grew up in Connecticut. Ah. And he was a Ranger fan, and Ricky and uh, and Quickie told me that. But I would say this: the thing that's different about those cats, Claves, is they want it. Mm-hmm. They want it. Yeah, bring it, give it to me. I'm here. I want it. So that's from the goalie standpoint. It doesn't matter. We get up one, down three, down whatever. Next shot, next save. I want it. When psychologically speaking, if it's not close or it's not going your way. The elevator could be going to different floors up here. Mm-hmm. Not for those cats. They're like, no, I want it. And the same thing for some of those players that I mentioned, some of the out players that I played with. Some guys I played with, they get the puck on their stick in a big spot. They're like, ooh, yeah, that's hot. Give it back. Change. They're going to bench. Change. Change. You know what I mean? <laughs> they see Kurt Muller coming out. They see Gretz. They see whoever coming out. They're like, no, nah, man, change. I'm good. I'm good. I'm yeah. good. But some of the cats, like the different, because, you know, everybody that plays is superhero in their own way. I'm just mm-hmm. speaking relatively to the league. But some of those guys, the guys that I talked about, they're like, no, nah, man, right here. I remember talking to Mark Messier one time when I played with him in Van and we were for Vancouver and we were played here at the Garden. It was one of his first games or not his first game back against the Rangers. And I, we, I knew for a fact we couldn't lose that game. And I was young in the league. It was like my fourth, fifth game at, with Vancouver at that time. I my sixth or seventh game. Anyway, it was early in the season. I knew we couldn't lose that game, and I was starting. That was my first game at Madison Square Garden. Oh. We win the game at the Garden. Everybody's going wild for Mark Messier, you know, all the Ranger fans, even though we're playing for Vancouver because everybody respects Mess. So after the game, he sets up this dinner at a spot, Upper West Side. He sets up this dinner. We're out there. I'm like, wow, mess. This is New York, mess. Mess, this is crazy, man. Mess, this is New York. Yeah, I'm 22 years right, old. Exact. Right, exactly. Single, 22. Of course. Bring it on. You know what I mean? I'm like, mess. You packed your is- good suits for the road trip? Of course. Right? <laughs> I had my lineup. I was fresh. Cologne was fresh. I was, I was good to go. I'm like, mess, this place is crazy, New York, man. I can imagine Jeter here, man. Jeter must... Wow, Jeter, wow, it's got to be crazy. And all messed because he always stood like this. His shoulders are back, his head's up, and he's like. He pointed at his chest like, yo, this is my I'm city. here too. Exactly. I'm here too. I own this. Right. So with that, I was like, oh, but that's what I mean. Those cats yeah. are different, man. Hey, was, tell me different. about him. Is it true that when you got called up and you were new with the team, he made sure you had a good suit to travel with? Oh, yeah, man. I, I saw it numerous times. And. You know what else too is he had his he had his uh his employee Maria and I say employee because she was like chef cleaner personal services and you know took care of his place his loft in, in Vancouver at the time in Yaletown and he would have us over for dinner man fresh cooked food 
you know, especially being young guys in the league, mm-hmm. you're just trying to figure all that out, you know, and fresh cooked food, man, fresh pasta, fresh rice, whatever, chicken breast, salmon, since we were there, he, his level of compassion and empathy and class, especially given who he was and who he is and all that he's done six times Stanley cup champ. It was crazy. So that, that, yeah, that was very impactful, man. I'll always be grateful to mess. I had a chance to spend some time with him last year during NHL awards in Vegas, but that level of class. And also one of the things about him too, is especially for me as a brother, he was cool and he's cool in New York. I've heard that. He's cool with hoopers. He's cool with being in the Caribbean. And that's when I was like, wow. So he was really, really cool that way, man. Easy, real, family cat, all about the sport, all about his craft, and all about treating people with, with decency and respect. Hey, before we get out of here, you still in the apparel business? I'm not as such. I'm more – it's funny you ask me. You see me rocking my no-fly-hole shirt now. Uh, since COVID came down, it's been difficult for us with our supply chain to be able to uh, not only buy but also all of our decoration – so I'm kind of you turning that into content now. So it's now about content more so. And that's why I do more of my IG lives I'm doing today. And I'm glad you asked me that. So I've kind of dovetailed. And then today at 4 p.m. Eastern, which is 3 p.m. Central, your time, I'll have sorry, Blues fans. I'll have the great Jonathan Taves on, though, today. That's at all 4 right. p.m., three-time Stanley Cup champ, two Olympic gold. I mean, he wins at walking down the street. Hey, ask him how much of a pain in the ass Steve Ott was against him in that one year <laughs> they eliminated. And and Ott stole the series because he got under his skin so much, man. Yep. Uh, I remember that. Was something. I remember that. Yeah, man. Um, so yeah, that'll be cool. So we've been doing I've been doing more Instagram lives. I'm more into the content now than the wearables, but we'll see where it goes post post-COVID. But make sure you check us out. Check me out. Uh, at Kev, my same last name, at Kev Weeks. On Instagram, I'll be live at 4 p.m. We have a lot of great guests, and Clades, you're going to be one of them. I'm, I'm in, man. Hey, I here, look to having you. here's my last question. Yeah, how close are you, how close or how far away are you from your playing weight since COVID has kicked into town? Huh. Um, <laughs> I would say probably I'm plus seven or eight right now. Plus seven or eight. Okay, plus so seven you, or eight. You got work to do until the playoffs get back, huh? Yeah, you got a little All work right. to do. Sounds yep, like a play. I got a little work to do. Yeah. Hey, listen, man, this has been a blast. I can't thank you enough. Uh, we're going to do this again. You let me know when you want to do something and we're going to stay in touch as well. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Kevin Weeks. He's given us some great times and some great stories. We appreciate you, my friend, and uh, best of luck and best of health to you and your family. Clabes, thanks so much, man. Appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks to all the Cards and Blues fans out there, NHL fans out in Missouri, and the good folks at Enterprise, man. They've been great to the league and they've been great to me. So thank you so much. I guess I have to wait and see you in Florida, man, because you're not coming here this year for the cup. I so know. I guess I have to see you in Florida. So man, I'll, I, I'll catch you down there. Yeah, exactly. I got I, some spots. I got okay, some spots. Okay, same. And we got some spots uh, in St. Louis, too. We got some real good spots in Clayton, too. Bro, I got you but, in St. Louis. Don't right, worry about I that. You I, got I, you. You. I got you. I got you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, he's Kevin Weeks. Uh, I'm Mike Claiborne. Thanks for watching and listening to the Zoomcast on ClavesOnline.com.